about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Um, I don't know about you, but to me, Sydney this week has been 30% more grumpy. Has anyone else experienced this? Something about almost being blown over seems to get people in all kinds of places. There's a lot of anxiety in our world at the moment. And you may have just listened to Deuteronomy 24 and you'll be like, oh man, are you serious? It's one of those parts of the Bible where you think, well, you know, this is why people don't like the Bible. You know, long lists of laws that don't seem to make a lot of sense all the time. But I actually think in Deuteronomy 24, there are some astounding things. I think if you're weary and restless tonight, Deuteronomy 24 is what you need. I think underneath all of what you read here, and there are some complicated things that we'll talk about, you see the goodness of God on display and his good purposes for his world. It's chapters like this that are strident atheists like Tom Ballard as opposing the Christian faith and interpretation of the Bible as he has found, he finds something in here worthwhile. He, in a, a, a quote recently in the interview, said, I'll say that over the last couple of years, my strident atheism has been tempered a little bit. And that's sort of through my involvement in refugee advocacy. Through that, I've met a lot of faith leaders who, to me, are living the best values of the Christian teaching. Isn't that fascinating? Something that doesn't change his mind necessarily, but stops him in his tracks. God's care for the vulnerable. That is the good thing on display in Deuteronomy 24. That the God we see in Jesus Christ, the God of Israel, is a God not just for the powerful and the strong and the successful, not on the, heart, on the side of the rich, but is a God who is intimately concerned with vulnerable people who are falling through the cracks, who are at the bottom, that they don't cease to exist on the earth. And in Deuteronomy 24, he summons Israel to live out his heart as a community. It's a stunning thing. There is no God like this. There is no textbook on a society like this that puts care for the vulnerable as a thread running through all things. So come on this journey with me tonight. Uh, I want to have a look at uh, uh, the the way that God's heart for the vulnerable comes out of this passage. So we're going to do that in two halves, looking at two different uh, vulnerable people in this chapter, and then I'm going to ask two questions. Two vulnerable people, two questions. That's how we're going to move forward. The first type of person and the first category you see on view here, a bit awkwardly and a bit complicatedly, is vulnerable families. In verses 1 to 5, we're given two examples of God's heart for vulnerable families. Now, you might have read that first bit of chapter 24, you're listening to it going, that actually sounds really awkward and not so good. Um, But just before we uh, journey into it, can I say that what I think we have on display here is God's concern for vulnerable women. 
That's actually what's happening here. Let me show you how that works. In verse 1, we, we launch into this first example of vulnerable families. And there's a scenario where a man has taken a wife and then divorced her. And then she marries another man and he divorces her as well. This is the only real command in the whole Torah, the first five books, that is about divorce. And interestingly, it doesn't actually tell you whether divorce is bad. It just assumes that it happens. That marriages will, in a private way, sometimes fall apart. And this is particularly about one scenario and whether remarriage is possible. Now, before we get uh, a bit further in on this, let's just own the awkwardness of that bit where it says, if he finds something displeasing in her, and how icky that feels, how uh, objective that moment is of the woman, and how she's being passed around here very awfully. You know, you could look at a verse like that and say that gives a reason for a man to divorce a woman for whatever reason they feel like. And you know what? There were some Jews in the first century who thought that, who took this as a license to divorce their wife no matter what, they, what circumstances or what was happening. Jesus had a little bit to say about that in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, wait for this, for any and every reason? That's their interpretation of that verse. What does Jesus say? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says, how dare you interpret that verse in that way? Don't you know what the Bible says about marriage? How it's about two people coming together and into a union that isn't supposed to be broken? Divorce is not what is supposed to happen. Yes, this verse claims that it does, but it's not supposed to. It's not the design. And so Jesus uh, is very much against that interpretation. So if you feel the weight of that, and if there's permission in that for men, it is not there according to the Lord Jesus Christ, just to let you know. But let's get back to what the main thing that's happening here. Why is it that the first man, after this woman has lost her second husband, been divorced or he dies, how come he can't remarry her? Because that's what's on view here. That's the command. Don't remarry her. The question is, why would he want to in the first place? In the scenario, he doesn't like her for some unknown, obscure reason. You know, What's around this verse either side are economic things. In the chapter just before, it ends by talking about uh, how to do interest on loans. And after it talks about the way you take security for loans. In fact, this whole chapter and section is about economics. Because marriage in the ancient world isn't primarily about romance. It is about economics. It's about social functioning And the reason why this man probably wants to remarry this wife is, well, a divorce leaves her with money. She's come into wealth. And even there's some cases of this sort of thing happening in the ancient world uh, where that wife would come back into the household, not on terms of as a wife really, but in, in as a slave. Like their past marriage gives him some ownership over her. You see, what is happening here is actually a piece of legal protection for that woman who ends up in that scenario. 
Because when that man comes back and says, you're going to be my wife again, she puts the certificate up and says, nah, you wrote this. I am not yours. This money is not yours. The certificate of divorce was a way of protecting, in this scenario, a vulnerable woman from a greedy man. In verse 4, here's what you hear, that God thinks about a scenario like this. It is detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Don't you love that? He hates greedy men taking advantage of vulnerable women. Isn't that good news? That's your God. Standing on the side of vulnerable people. Like a woman who's been sent out of two different homes. In verse 5, uh, it shifts gear a little bit. And it's a more of a happy scenario, really. Uh, but there's a similar thing underneath it. In verse 5, you see that once a man gets married, he gets a gap year. How good's that? He doesn't have to go to war. It says, no, don't lay any duty on him. Just let him, let him chill out. Um, you know, I didn't get a gap year when I got married. It sounds fantastic. Um, the point is he's supposed to go in and make his wife happy, he says in verse 5. Isn't that beautiful? It's, marriage isn't just supposed to be for economic gain. It's also just for the joy of the wife. And you see the contrast between the men using this woman like a football in verses 1 to 4 and the man who is after his wife's happiness selflessly. Isn't that beautiful, that difference? Um, but there's also an economic reality underneath verse 5. Uh, and that's that if you get all the young men and they all get married and then you send them to war and then half of them die, all of a sudden you have all these widows. It's much better if they have a year with their wife and hopefully have a kid uh, and he sets up you know, the, the household and the, the economics of the place. And so if he were to die, there's actually something to uphold her and the family. Uh, it's pretty wise, actually. And demonstrates, once again, God's heart for vulnerable families, for the, that beautiful structure of family being held together and people not falling into a place of social, uh, that's socially problematic or difficult. God is for the vulnerable here, stitched into Israel's society. So that's vulnerable families on the one hand. The rest of the chapter, uh, on the, the other hand, looks at the vulnerable poor. And what you get through the rest uh, is a whole list of different laws and policies that ensure that no one in Israel would fall through the economic bottom line. That even if you got poor, you'd still have food on your table. Even if you got poor, you'd still have a cloak to sleep in at night. And that people couldn't take advantage of you. Let me show you three real quick things here about the way this works. There's, there's, there's three practices really that, that hold the rest of the chapter together. The first is about loaning money in a way that doesn't threaten someone's life. Loaning money in a way that doesn't threaten someone's life. In verse 6, they're commanded, don't take someone's millstones as a security for a debt. Millstones was the thing you'd use to grind out the grain so you could eat. To take that from someone was to take their ability to make food for themselves. It was a loan that put their existence at threat. The same in verse 7 where that someone's fallen into debt and the only way the person who's loaned them thinks they'll get the money back is by kidnapping them and selling them into slavery. That's a loan that threatens someone's life, don't you think? And here's what God says. 
He says, actually, in verse 7, to put that person to death. Such is his opposition to the trafficking of humans, to making profit out of the loss of human life and the selling into slavery. Such is God's care for the vulnerable. You know, in verse 10, it says, if you make a loan, you can't walk into someone's house and just grab whatever you want as a security. Their house is protected from you. You don't have the ability to be violent to them. And in verse 12, if you've got someone who's uh, you're loaned to when they're so poor that the only thing they can give you is their cloak, their one possession, then make sure they get it back before the sun goes down. Don't let the, the loan you've given them threaten their existence. Isn't this beautiful? The next, the second one is that uh, all the workers in Israel would have their basic work rights protected. So in verse 14, they were to make sure that if a foreigner or someone poor and needy was working for them, that they got paid before sunset, especially if they depended upon that money to eat that night and to live the next day, and their family was dependent on it. They had to uphold those rights to protect the vulnerable in their society. In verse 17, it says that, that, that those same group of people were to have justice done for them. You know, Nicholas Wolterstorff said that injustice is not equally distributed. You know, injustice does happen to the rich. They get their things taken from them. They get mistrial and they get all kinds of things. But the poor get it more disproportionately. When you don't have a voice or a lawyer or some money and no one is speaking on your behalf, it's very easy for people to oppress you, to take things from you, and for you to lose your livelihood. And so Israel were to protect the basic monetary and judicial rights of even the poorest member of the land. But the third thing here is the most stunning In verses 19 to 22, there's this classic command that condemns all perfectionists. Did you notice? Uh, It says, if you're a perfectionistic harvester, you need to stop that now. When you walk through and you take all your your grapes and all your olives and and you take all your sheaves and all your grain out, make sure that you don't do it all. If you leave a patch in the backfield sometime, don't go back and get it. If you leave some, you drop a basket on the way through, just leave it on the ground. Why? Why? So that any poor person knows when they walk into your vineyard, they'll have something to eat. They'll have some grain to pick up. They'll have something for their family. Woven through Israelite society was to be a, a, a seasonal generosity where they just allowed space for people to be fed without even having to think about it. God in these three ways, with loans and worker rights and with the harvest, is is knitting into Israelite community a care for the vulnerable, the vulnerable poor, that they should not fall through the cracks, that even they should have enough if they fall into hard or difficult times. God's heart is for the vulnerable, for the least. And Israel would live out that reality. And, you know, we read in James 1 before that that is actually our call too. What is religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless? 
to be pure, to not live like the rest of the world, and what? To care for orphans and widows in their distress. That God summons us as believers, as he summoned Israel, to a life that has particular concern for the, for the world's most vulnerable. And so I want to ask two questions about that right now, about what we've seen here and, and how, to, how, how to deal with that. And the first is this, what does that actually look like in practice for us? In Sydney, in this age, I think actually we as Christians make some mistakes about this, if, it's, if that's okay to say. We assume that if we're going to be for the vulnerable, we need to do two things, I think, generally. We think, I've got to make sure I vote for someone who will care for the poor, politically. And I have to make sure my church does some stuff too. That's our general play. It doesn't matter who you vote for or who your church is, make sure both those things happen. And that, they're both good things, right? Vote for someone who cares for the vulnerable, no matter who they are on the spectrum. Uh, and make sure your church is caring for the poor, because we're commanded to. But, you know, church only has so much bandwidth. And we've got to tell people about Jesus as well. And, you know, not everything's a political issue. And if you look through this chapter, it's not really those two things where the vulnerable are cared for, actually. If you were to just quickly look again and, and list the vocations that were involved in this chapter, what would they be? Maybe a lawyer in verses 1 to 4 drawing up a certificate of divorce that protected a vulnerable woman. Perhaps a military general who has to make sure his young men go home after they got married. Uh, perhaps uh, the, the finance and banking sector that makes sure their practices actually care for the vulnerable. Or how about the small business owners who make sure their workers get paid. Or the farmers out in the fields working. You know, it, it's, not, it's the ordinary Israelite in their nine to five. It's in that sphere, in that space that they're to be caring for the vulnerable, right? And so I think Deuteronomy 24 calls us to think in your 9 to 5, in your way of life, in the stuff that God has given to you to do day after day, how is it that that connects with the vulnerable? What policies and programs are you writing at work? You know, what are you designing? Who are you designing for? What kids are you bringing up? At home as you raise your kids, how are you acting out and leading in God's heart? How is it the stuff of your everyday life can be used, leveraged on behalf of the vulnerable of this city? How is it that that is part of the main headline of the stuff of your life rather than a thing to the side? Let me give you two examples that might help you a bit with this. Um, one is from my friend, uh, who has two kids, one four, one two. And uh, he decided the other week that he'd do the 40-hour famine. And it changed this year. I don't know if you know this, but they decided in view of the Syrian refugee crisis that instead of going without food for 40 hours, uh, you had to live out of a backpack for 40 hours. So you could pack it up and you didn't, couldn't use furniture or anything. Just pack it up and go. And he was thinking about this and he thought, I'm going to do this, but I, I, think, I, I think my four-year-old can handle it. And this cute little four-year-old with a backpack, all the little snacks in, uh, little toys and stuff. Uh, she was allowed to have a bed, which was good. Um, and they read stories about refugees, and they talked about God's heart for the foreigner. And I, I watched them do this, and I thought, that is just beautiful. 
stitching into your household God's heart for the vulnerable. Your four-year-old being raised in that. You know, how is it that your house can stitch into its way of life? I care for the vulnerable. You guys are, a lot of you guys are in share houses, right? I have no idea how that works, so have fun with that. Uh, you know, but how is it that your share house can stitch into the way it exists? I care for the vulnerable. Something else that's warmed my heart recently is something that's just started being built in Darlinghurst, Hammond Care, great organization about dementia. Have uh, worked with a church in Darlinghurst. Uh, there's this old site that used to be a car wash. They've knocked it down and they're building this four-story building. Uh, and it is for 42 people. And here's the criteria. Homeless, over 60, with dementia. The most vulnerable people in our city. There's about 400 rough sleepers in the, the council area of Sydney. That's 10% of the most vulnerable going to be off the streets. That's God's heart for the vulnerable. And you know, it took architects, it took politicking, it took a fierce CEO, it's taking people from all over Sydney to fund the millions of it. But it is God's heart being enacted on behalf of the vulnerable. And it is stunning to watch. How is it that you can be a part of that? But the second question I have to ask is really, well, isn't this chapter just a pipe dream? I mean, is it anything more than a nice idea? I think there's two things that mean that it's not. And the first is something that kind of runs through the chapter. There's this strong judicial theme in the chapter. You know, when you give the cloak back to the widow, guess who loves it? God does in verse 13. When you don't give the wage to the worker in verse 15, who are you accountable to? God on high. It says that everyone is morally culpable for their own sin. And you see, the only thing that safeguards this reality is that it is not just up to us. There is a higher court of appeal toward which every vulnerable person who is oppressed by humans in this world can appeal, will be heard by, and justice will be done on behalf of by Almighty God. You know, I meet people in this city and they say, you know, I love this God of justice who like loves the poor, but this God of judgment, I really don't want to be on board with that. And I want to say, you can't have one without the other. Because if you love justice, you need a God who will perfectly enact it in every case for every forgotten child and every forgotten woman throughout this whole earth. Only the judgment of God safeguards that. And prevents this from being only a pipe dream. But the second thing is that really the thing that stops us from being a pipe dream is me and you, isn't it? Let me tell you a really embarrassing story. I was walking down King Street last week. And I was in one of those task-focused moods that I get into. You know that if you know me. And um, I was going to get a go-get van. And had my phone and I'm like planning, task-focused, get this done, that. We're on this, walking up King Street, and there are two people 
uh, asking for money from me. And I don't have a policy of what I do every time, but my one policy is that I look them in the eye and I say something because they're human, they're made in the image of God. And so I'm like, phone, people. Talk, phone, people. And in the midst of the phone and the people, I didn't locate where the money thing was on the ground. (laughs) And so I'm going and I step in it and it wraps around my ankle and the coins go all over the road. (laughs) And so I'm there and they're really upset and the shopkeeper comes out and it's like there was a lot of money in there and I'm like, this is real bad, I've got to get my van. Um, And... You know, I bought them some money, and I went and got my van, and I was driving away thinking, you know what, God, I'm sure love was in there somewhere, but I'm pretty sure embarrassment and guilt were riding shotgun. <laughs> you know, I was driven much more by that than love for, for them and where they were at. And there's that funny tangle in me all the time when I look after and look at the vulnerable in this city. And if this is going to be anything more than a pipe dream, then that has to change. And Moses knew that about Israel as well. And in verse 18 and 22 to finish, he said, the secret to this, guys, is this. When you see the vulnerable in your land, remember, that was me. You were a slave in Egypt. You were oppressed. You didn't get paid. You had no rights. They took everything from you and then God acted on your behalf to set you free and to take you to a new place. When you see them, think, that's what I was. That's where I was. And my God saved me. And you know, friends, it's exactly the same for us. You may not have been uh, physically poor in this world. Some of you have. You may not have been physically vulnerable. But we all are spiritually vulnerable before our God because all of us in the court of higher appeal are condemned for our generosity is so weak. And you know what? In our vulnerable spiritual and eternal vulnerability, you know what God did in Jesus Christ? He became vulnerable. Grew up in a poor village was put on uh, trial and uh, had an unjust verdict to death against him and had the clothes on his back stripped away. Why? So that your spiritual vulnerability would be no more and you would be eternally housed. You see, it's to the extent that your heart really understands that really without Jesus Christ, you are the vulnerable one that you'll be able to see people around you and go, yes, that was me until my Jesus saved me. When your heart gets that, the whole game changes. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we look at this chapter and we're so thankful for it that you, you are a God on beh- who is on behalf of the vulnerable. And Father, we confess the weakness of our our own hearts that we are not naturally for this. And we pray for such a deep sense of our helplessness without Jesus and the riches of your generosity toward us that we might begin to stitch into our lives your heart of vulnerability in Jesus' power.
listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.